According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 1 this morning, verses 46 through 56. Our second week looking at the song of praise that Mary composed. This passage most commonly referred to as the Magnificat. Luke chapter 1. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to assure that we are filled with the Spirit and equipped to handle spiritual truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the opportunity that we have this morning to assemble together and to receive instruction. We thank you for the provision you've made for a local church, for this lampstand to continue forth, and for the growth that you have supplied us with. We ask now this morning that you would bless our study, set aside distractions, protect us, Father, from those that would come in here and do us harm. Guide us into the truth. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are examining Mary's song of praise. Verses 46 through 56, there are only three points of study in this passage. We have seen each of these three, although the third one has several subpoints to it. First of all, Mary's song of praise is commonly referred to as the Magnificat, coming from the Latin Vulgate of that passage, Luke chapter 1 and verse 46 in the Vulgate. The first word of the song is Magnificat, in the Latin, et ait Maria Magnificat anima mea dominum. The anima is Latin for soul, where we actually get the English word animal, and I think the the etymology of the term animal is quite interesting and the description of man as animal is rather interesting as well because it is non-biblical and, and inaccurate. <laughs> but be that as it may, on a linguistic basis, the term anima being the Latin basis for soul is, is interesting nonetheless. Secondly, her song is similar to that of Hannah's in the Old Testament and we spent some time last week going back to 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1-10, through 10, and examining the song of Hannah in that particular passage where she had uh, not been able to conceive, where she had been um, tormented by her rival, that is, in, uh, uh, in the polygamous marriage there, and, and the other wife in that marriage was producing children, and Hannah was not. And uh, this being the source of uh, grief to her, she then made a vow, promised the Lord that if he did indeed bless her with a son, that he would be dedicated to the Lord's service throughout his life. And uh, the song that she wrote as a response to the birth of that son is recorded there in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Many similarities, of course, to Luke chapter 1, which you might expect because both songs are written by a mother in the, in the joy of the, the promised child. And uh, both... Uh, songs reflect uh, uh, an understanding of God's promises and the faithfulness to his covenants. Which brings us to point three. Mary's song reflects an amazing Old Testament foundation. Mary's song reflects an amazing Old Testament foundation. And we have a total of ten areas that we want to look at that this song in these verses touches upon Old Testament truth. And of these ten separate areas, last week we only covered the first two. So we really want to really want to hit it hard today and, and try to get to these other areas. The first one under subpoint A, the pairing of soul and spirit. The pairing of soul and spirit. And we've done studies on soul and spirit in times past. As, in fact, as recently as First Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, we might have even touched upon it a little bit in chapter 2 when we were breaking down the distinctions between the natural man and the spiritual man, the one who has no capacity to understand the word of God versus the one, the only one who is equipped to handle the word of God, that being the spiritual man. That all human beings have soul. And even the statement, all human beings have soul, is not specifically accurate because all human beings are soul. They happen to be soul clothed in a human body. Adam became a living soul. And that is a uh, remarkable distinction. So we've done studies on soul and spirit in the past, but this is likewise uh, related to Old Testament revelation, according to Psalm 77, verses 2 and 3, as well as Isaiah chapter 26 and verse 9. Old Testament, New Testament alike reveal 
the uh, two sides to our humanity, that is the visible and the invisible, or as Paul calls it, the perishable, uh, the uh, outer man perishes, the inner man is renewed day by day. But then when you take a focus upon the inner man itself, that invisible part of man, an even further division is noted, that being the division between soul and spirit. And uh, so depending on how you want to break it down, I think some scholars go, they start straining camels when they start trying to argue the, the distinctions between the, the, the uh, trichotomous beings and the, and the dichotomous beings and that uh, were, were two parts, visible and invisible, and I can prove that biblically, were three parts if you understand that the invisible part is itself broken down into two. So, all that being said, Mary had an approach to this, and she reflects that when she says, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. The second area where her song reflects on an Old Testament foundation was on the personal nature of that salvation. As we just read, My spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Mary understood the personal nature of God himself as being her God, and the redemptive nature of her God in terms of her personal Savior, not just the God who saved the human race. And we think about the corporate redemption of fallen humanity, or not just the, the God who uh, chose Israel as his chosen nation, that he is a God who deals on vast terms from Alpha to Omega with the rise and fall of empires, with the vast eternal plan of the ages, it just encompasses centuries and centuries of time, millennia of time. As I said, vast empires, the rise and fall of kings, these things that we would consider to be important or weighty on a historical framework. But he is also a personal savior. And I think part of the greatness of God is not just his majesty, but also his, his, um, the particular way that he focuses on individuals at individual moments. Not just vast sweeps of time, but particular moments in each and every day. And not just the, the breadth of humanity as a whole, but with individual people. In other words, God has a plan for me, individually, me, as a person, today, moment by moment by moment, God the Father has a plan. And so the Christian way of life then becomes very personal. The Christian way of life then becomes very intimate between each one of us and our Heavenly Father. Now, the third area this morning where Mary's song touches upon an Old Testament foundation, point C, God's observance and vindication of faithful servants. God's observance and vindication of faithful servants. And I want to be very careful with you this morning as we teach this, because I think there's some misperceptions even among well-taught believers who maybe don't think it through in its entirety. God's observance and vindication of faithful service, servants. All right, Expressed here in verse 48, expressed in the Psalms, expressed really in many places throughout the Old Testament, Psalms in particular, but elsewhere as well, New Testament likewise. And we have a principle, a general principle as far as how the plan of God tends to work out in life for the most part. But keep in mind, when we're dealing with principles, it doesn't always work that way. <laughs> there are times when God the Father will operate contrary to the norm. And the more and more we grow, we start to wonder maybe more and more so exactly what is normal. <laughs> well, we'll talk about that here in a moment. Let me just touch upon the point, first of all, and then we will go back to it and give, I think, the, the needed disclaimers. Again, the song begins in verse 46, And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regard, he, had, he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, all, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. All right? We're keying in on the phrase, for he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. That God himself paid attention to Mary's circumstance. That God the Father observed Mary's humility. Which we can understand. We understand that God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. We can understand that faithful believers are 
most often rewarded believers see. We want to be very cautious with this as a principle. We want to learn it as a principle, but we also want to be very cautious that we don't grab that and, and, and claim what is a principle as a law, as a rule, even as a um, manipulative tool, as it were. Because we cannot abandon grace even when we recognize principles. Okay? In other words... He has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. We have to recognize that God's treatment of Mary was still centered in grace and nothing else. That he did not choose her to be the mother of Christ because of her humility. That would give a layer of merit to why she was chosen. And there's no merit to why she was chosen. She didn't deserve a thing. None of us deserve a thing. So as I... Lay this out for you. Hopefully will come the understanding that grace is always grace, no matter what. And even when God is rewarding us in time, and even when God rewards us in eternity, it's still grace when he chooses to do so. We cannot for a moment start to claim that we have earned or deserved anything. Let's go back to the Psalms and find the Old Testament foundation for this as a concept. Psalm 18, verses 20 through 24, a Davidic psalm, not precisely pegged in the life of David, for the choir director a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spoke to the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Again, that's not precisely dated because there were many days in which the Lord delivered David from the hand of his enemies and from the hand of Saul, although the indication that he was delivered from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul um, gives many people reason to believe that this was rather late in life following the last of the rebellions uh, that he faced, and I think we touched upon this some in the in the Life of David series when we were trying to date Psalm 18. But all that aside, let's look at verses 20 through 24. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness. All right? So it kind of sounds like uh, human merit. kind of sounds like David has done something to earn and deserve God's favor, and God couldn't help himself but just had to reward David. Not so. Not so, because it's all by grace that we're even supplied righteousness in the first place. All right, how can David be righteous? Because he placed his faith in Christ. He was born again, he was redeemed, he was saved, and God supplied righteousness. by uh, uh, Abraham believed in God, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Everything's by grace. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me. There again, David understands the principle of confession. He understands that he has to cleanse himself every time he is convicted of his iniquity, and he does so. I think David, is, I know David is the only man in Scripture called a man after God's own heart. It's not because he was sinless and perfect. It's because he understood how to confess when convicted of his guilt. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his ordinances were before me, and I did not put away his statutes from me. I was also blameless with him, and I kept myself from my iniquity. See, David, notice how he personalized iniquity. I kept myself from my iniquity. You know, each one of us better, and I'm sure we already know it, but if you uh, are living in some state of denial where you've not yet maybe uh, readily confessed to yourself that you know what your sin patterns are, just stop and recognize each one of us has sin, sin patterns. Each one of us has areas of strength, areas of weakness. We might not be on the lascivious end of things. Our sin pattern may take after more of the ascetic trends. But we understand how the old sin nature works. And David personalized it when he said, I kept myself from my iniquity. He knew what his sin problems were. And as we've recently been in the life of David's study, we, we know them too because the scripture revealed them for us. Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness. 
according to the cleanness of my hands in his eyes. Notice, in his eyes, meaning that everything here in this passage is being related to God's perspective, to God's absolute perspective, which is one of grace. It all focuses on in his eyes. And the only way David can be righteous, the only way David can be clean, the only way David can walk in the way of the Lord, the only way David can put away these sins, the only way each of these verses, the only way any of this can happen is by virtue of the grace provision God the Father has made, being saved by faith, by grace through faith, walking by grace through faith, um, picking yourself up after you fall by grace through faith. Okay? <laughs> you know... Uh, the way this is phrased with I was blameless with him and kept myself from my iniquity, this isn't saying that he never sinned. What it's saying is that when he sinned, he confessed, he picked up, he kept moving. And that's what you and I are going to be at the judgment seat of Christ. Blameless with great joy. Not because we never failed in the course of this life, but because he gave us the grace provision to pick up and move on each and every time we do fail. So I hope we can understand this as well. God's observance and vindication of faithful servants. Now notice, God watches. He is watching. Verse 25 says, it's beyond the scope of the immediate context here, but just to continue on. With the kind, you show yourself kind. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. In other words, God has ways of dealing with his creatures in these, following these general principles. With the pure, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you show yourself, um, well, twisted. In other words, he turns the, the, the crooked upon themselves. For you save an afflicted people, but haughty eyes you abase. This is the overriding principle that he is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We understand it from Old Testament, New Testament, and everywhere else in between. All right? Now, again, before I even go beyond this, I want to make sure we're clear that there are general principles for how things work. But there will be times and occasions when God the Father will operate in a manner different from the general principle. See, for example, during times of testing, during times of undeserved suffering. That's where Job's three friends couldn't make the connection. <laughs> Say, well, Job, if you were living righteously, God wouldn't be letting this happen to you. And rather than understand that God was deviating for this season, for the time, from the general principle of the way things work, for Job's testing and ultimately for his benefit, see, Job is going to be blessed with a double portion blessing for the end of his days, a level of blessing he never would have been prepared for had he not gone through the testing that he went through. And so God was... Um, deviating from the general principle. And I hope that this was clear when we went through Proverbs and are through the Bible series. That we lay down general principles. Train up a child in the way he should go and when he is old he will not depart from it. All right, we understand that's a general principle. And by and large, children that are saved young, children that are raised up in the church, children that are grounded in the Word of God in their youth, by and large, as a general principle will continue in that Christian walk, for better or for worse, one way or the other, in their adult life. Now, there are, are there exceptions to that rule? Of course. Are there going to be times, remember, it's when he is old, he will not depart from it. <laughs> so are there times after youth and before old age where maybe they're walking a little wild and getting stupid and facing consequences? Of course. See, the problem is, though, is that we take general principles and then we want to hold fast to those and say, well, that's a rule. And we want to hold that as a rule over God and, and give us a measure of sovereignty over God. And we can't do that. We can't do that. Because then we can get prideful and we can start demanding what's ours and say, well, God, I've been faithful. I deserve such and such. And that's a problem. <laughs> so... I think if we understand doctrines, promises, and principles, and the distinctions between them, we will go quite a ways. Uh, David here in this passage, Mary back in Luke chapter 1, and I, in both cases they recognized that God has 
blessed them. He has blessed them abundantly. It has come as a um, consequence, if you will, or it has come as a response to faithfulness. <coughs> oh, excuse me. It has come as a consequence to faithfulness, but it didn't have to. Mary was humble and God did great things for her. But he did not have to do great things for her. He chose to do great things for her. David was faithful and God chose to do great things for David. So let's not lose sight of grace in time and in eternity for the rewards that he blesses us with. We're going to get to a tremendous amount of this teaching further on in the life of Christ's day when he talks about the laborers and other parables and so forth and the, the, the grumbling of man that thinks they deserve something and thinks they know what God's business is in rewarding us. So we will deal with that. All right, the fourth area, point D. God the Mighty One. God the Mighty One. So many different names for God in the Old Testament, reflected in the New Testament. And this is an interesting title. The Mighty One. Now she's already addressed Jehovah, the Lord. She's already addressed Elohim. Okay, These being the Hebrew roots of what she's addressing in, in, in Luke. Admittedly, it's a Greek passage. So she, she's addressed Kyrios and she's addressed Theos. But here she is referring to him as the Mighty One. The Mighty One in Luke 1.49. Tremendous Old Testament foundation for the Mighty One. In fact, an Old Testament foundation that is not only strictly to Israel, but to all the Gentile nations as well. In, in most respects, Jehovah was the personal name that was revealed to Israel. It was given to Moses. The significance of the I Am was revealed to Moses when Moses delivered Israel out of Egypt and Israel was called forth as a nation. At that point of time, the Lord revealed his name of I Am, revealed it to Moses, the significance of it, and Jehovah then became the personal redemptive name for Israel. But the Mighty One is descriptive of the Lord for not only Israel, but all the Gentile nations, indeed the entire world. And we see it in Psalm 24, 8. We see it in Zephaniah 3, 17. We really see it in several places and its derivatives in several places with El Shaddai, El Elyon, and um, many of these other terms that the, uh, the Most High God was known by the, uh, the Gentile people. All right, Psalm 24, 8. And I think Mary's use of this title shows a much broader understanding of what God himself was doing when God became flesh and tabernacled among us. I think too many of the Jews during the life of Christ were too narrow in their view, too focused in their view, because they were looking at the Mashiach, the Christ of Israel. And they were looking for the Jewish Mashiach to come, to stomp on the Gentiles, to lift up the throne of David, and so forth. But in reality, God's plan was worldwide to redeem the entire human race. And um, uh, I think all too often the, the Jews of Christ's day overlooked that and were focused. I know the zealots were, and many of the others, perhaps Judas Iscariot and the others, uh, even after the resurrection, Peter and, and John were all excited, saying, Lord, is it now that you're going to return the kingdom to Israel? So, uh, no, redemption had, was, had value for the entire human race. God was redeeming all of mankind, uh, Jews and Gentiles. And it's interesting. Now, Psalm 24. The King of Glory entering Zion. All right, that's a publishing blurb. <laughs> Not inspired, but verse 9, we do have the king of glory is coming in. So it's at least it's a publishing blurb based upon the revealed text. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. The world and those who dwell in it. All right? We're not just dealing with Israel. We're dealing with the whole human race. We're dealing with planet earth. 
For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. The entire human race. Keep in mind, this passage is worldwide in its scope. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? We touched upon this a little bit last week. The idea of who is possibly holy enough, righteous enough, worthy enough to take this place of dominion. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. In other words, he has to be the lamb unblemished. He cannot have any sin. Any personal sin disqualifies him from taking his place uh, on the hill of the Lord, the hill of Jehovah, in his holy place. Verse 5, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. We touched upon this as one of the verses that highlighted a personal Savior. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even Jacob. Verse 7, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? And he's described here in verse 8, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. He is God, the mighty one, God, the mighty one. It's remarkable that the Gabor, the term, the Hebrew Gabor, the Giborim, the, um, the idea of the mighty ones was always descriptive of great kings, descriptive of warriors, descriptive of giants, descriptive of angels. But the term was, was reserved in its ultimate absolute sense for the God of the universe, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the God of uh, creation. He is the Mighty One. I think that we, in English, we convey the same thing when we, um, when we give it the absolute and we turn the adjective into a noun. A substantive, as it were. Mighty is an adjective. And David had his mighty men. Uh, there were mighty kings. There were uh, mighty men of valor. The uh, giants were described as mighty. Uh, I can find passages that refer to the angels as mighty, his mighty angels. All right. But when you give it the definite article, the, and you capitalize the M, and you identify it as a singular being, the mighty one that is unique to God himself. The mighty one. Angels. There's a division of angels called mighty ones. The giants were mighty on the earth in those days. Mighty men of valor. Kings were known by their might. Even David's mighty men. But each of those is on a relative basis. In a limited sense of might. Right? Power. Dominion. <laughs> Anytime you're dealing with relative power, there's always something more. <laughs> What was that line? There's, there's always a bigger fish. Alright? There's always something more. Until you get to the absolute. And the difference between a relative and an absolute, I think, speaks for itself. So he is the mighty one. He is the mighty one. And I find it quite uh, remarkable that the mighty one is identified as the king of glory. Identified as Jehovah, strong and mighty. Jehovah, mighty in battle. The king of glory, the king of hosts, the one who's coming in to take, the only one who's qualified to come in and take the throne. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors. We're going to do some more work in future angelic studies on gates and doors being angelic references and uh, understanding of the gates of hell uh, in an angelic uh, context takes on a whole new uh, a whole new flavor when you when you break down the nature of the church and the angelic conflict in our present dispensation. Lift up your heads, O gates, lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of Glory may come in. Who is this King of Glory? The Lord of Hosts. That's Jehovah Tzavayoth. He is the King of Glory. 
So the understanding of God the Mighty One, not just simply the Redeemer of Israel, not just simply the Davidic King that's going to restore the Davidic throne and crush the Gentiles and we'll live happily ever after. But God himself became flesh and is redeeming the entire human race as the seed of the woman fulfillment and the promise made to Eve on the day they were driven out of the garden. All right, Zephaniah 3.17. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. All right, so if you can't find Zephaniah, just aim for Habakkuk and go to the next next book. <laughs> Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst. This is Jehovah your Elohim, personal God, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. I will gather those who grieve about the appointed feasts. You know, it's interesting. <laughs> in terms of apostasy, in terms of the children of Israel not walking the way they should walk, the post-exilic prophets like uh, Haggai, Zephaniah, uh, Zechariah, these, um, the uh, pronouncement of judgment upon Israel for their faithlessness was quite similar to the Lord Jesus Christ who wept over Jerusalem and said, how often I, I desired to gather you together and uh, yet you would not. We see it described here. And here is a victorious warrior, the one of great might, the one of great might, who is waiting to rule, not to dominate, not to um, enslave, not to rule with force, but to manifest love, to manifest joy. And it's quite interesting. I will gather those who grieve about the appointed feasts, they came from you, O Zion. The reproach of exile is a burden on them. Behold, I'm going to deal at that time with all your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will turn their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in, even at the time when I gather you together. Indeed, I will give you renown and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. So here is the Old Testament foundation among many passages for God the Mighty One. Alright? Point E. Holy is His name. Holy is His name. Mary communicates this in Luke one forty nine, Reflecting an understanding of Old Testament foundation. Psalm 111 verse 9. Holy is His name. The overriding summary of the law, thou shalt be holy for I am holy, way back in Leviticus, but it's reflected here in, in uh, this psalm, Psalm 111.9. Verse 7 says, the works of his hands are truth and justice, all his precepts are sure, they are upheld forever and ever, they are performed in truth and uprightness. He has sent redemption to his people. He has ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. Holy is his name. I think there's a lot of names that we overlook when we get all excited about uh, Jehovah Jireh or Jehovah Tzedkenu or uh, Elohim and all of these other names, we overlook holy. I think we also overlook jealous. <laughs> the Lord your God is a jealous God. Indeed, jealous is his name. Part of why he does not tolerate the worship of another. Because holy, because jealous is his name. Part of the uh, reason why he does not tolerate iniquity, because holy is his name. Why it was that fallen angels had to be cast out of his presence. Why it was that fallen man had to be driven out of his presence. Holy is his name. 
why it is that we must be made holy in order to be entered back into his presence. And the blessings of sanctification, we understand in terms of our salvation, that we are made holy, we are sanctified, we are qualified to enter into the presence of his glory. Holy is his name, point F. God's generational faithfulness. Mary understood God's generational faithfulness. Luke one fifty. And I think this is something we need to start clinging to more and more as the days grow darker, as the church age lingers, as the rapture uh, tarries, (laughs) and we find ourselves asking, how much worse can it get? How much longer can it be? What more apostasy do we need to see worldwide before, before the Lord returns? You know, like Monday of this week, for example, what's going on in Massachusetts? <laughs> we say, Lord, what else is going to happen? All right? God's generational faithfulness, because he may not come in our lifetime. He may come in our children's lifetime. He may not come in their lifetime. It may be their children's lifetime. So are we raising up our children so that they raise up their children to face the things they're going to face? Generational faithfulness. It's remarkable. I just received uh, this week a a Spurgeon autobiography that I've coveted for for years. (laughs) I guess coveted. Is that a fair way to say that? I don't know. But... A uh, four-volume autobiography that was written back in the 1800s. In fact, it was published within five years of his death. He died in 1892, and it was originally published in 1897. It's a four-volume set worth hundreds and hundreds of dollars. And um, I've pursued here and there on eBay and other locations. And I've never seen an entire four-volume set come up for sale. I've seen individual volumes here and there, and each of the individual volumes pretty much goes for 100 150 and I, and I was convinced that to accumulate those four volumes would be about six, 500, 600 bucks. And, uh, well, <laughs> the Lord's faithful. The, uh, the, the four volumes have uh, since been reprinted in a facsimile edition in two volumes, but unabridged, unedited, in its entirety, the four volumes are now available. And they're about 100 bucks instead of 600 bucks, and I got it on eBay for 55. So I thought, wow, thank you, Lord. Real provision there. Kept me from doing something rash and sinful like stealing them because I know where a set is. <laughs> I know that Ralph Braun owns a set of the original 1897 publication. And uh, at one time, he let me borrow them volume by volume. I, I, he wouldn't let me read volume two until I returned volume one. <laughs> and he inspected it for its condition and before he entrusted me with volume two and so forth. And so I did read all four volumes once upon a time. Anyway, where did I go? Oh, what I'm trying to illustrate is that in reading this autobiography and describing uh, the nature of his generation (laughs) as such, that he was wondering how much worse can it get (laughs) in the 19th century, in the mid to late 1800s, at the horrible state of of, uh, Christianity as he observed it in England of his day. And yet we recognize generational faithfulness from generation to generation. Mary says in Luke one fifty, His mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear Him. And we understand the Old Testament foundation for this. We also understand that generation upon generation comes under divine discipline of those who hate Him unto the fourth generation when He finally brings that to an end. But He shows faithfulness to a thousand generations towards those who love him. Psalm 103. Verse 15, As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind has passed over it, it is no more, and its place acknowledges it no longer. But the loving kindness of the Lord, that's chesed, that's the blessed loving kindness of the Lord, is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember his precepts to do them. God's generational faithfulness. 
And this is where we simply are able to go to the Lord and call upon his faithfulness. Not because we've earned it, not because we've deserved it, but because it's his nature to be faithful to those who are faithful. It is his nature to pour forth his chesed loving kindness. Yes, he's a God of judgment. Yes, he's a God of wrath. But he's not waiting to pour out judgment. He's waiting to pour out forgiveness. That's why he's slow to anger. And we can come to appreciate these blessings that he pours forth. And so we call upon him in generational faithfulness. And we plead on an intercessory basis for our children. We can find encouragement in the faithfulness of previous generations. I'm trying to instill that in our teen class on Sunday nights. I don't know how successful it's becoming. (laughs) But trying to get our teens to uh, understand and appreciate the heritage that they have been supplied, giving them a sense of, um, of, of love directed towards uh, the Elder Hatleys, for example, directed towards Mrs. Bean, for example, and the things there. I'm tickled pink that two of the teenage girls are going to start helping uh, Sandy and, and bring in, uh, bring in uh, Mrs. Bean in on Sunday mornings. I think that's perfect. For the Sundays that Sandy's not available and different things, and these two girls have volunteered to to uh, to assist in that. I think that's wonderful. Let the older women minister to the younger women. Let the younger women minister to the older women, because not only does it provide a benefit for these teenage girls, but it also provides an abundant benefit to to, to Mrs. Bean. It thrills her no end. Then to see young people growing up in the church, walking in the Word of God. <laughs> you stop and consider all of the years and all of the sacrifice and everything that Tilford and Nell poured into this church. It's uh, it's a blessing for for her to see the ministry of the Word of God continuing. God's generational faithfulness. Point G. God's opposition to the proud and grace to the humble. As we've already commented upon in verse 51, that he had regard for the humble state of his bondservant. That was in verse 48. Then verse 51, he has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. (coughs) He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and exalted those who were humble. His opposition to the proud and grace to the humble. It says verse 51 on the screen, which you should say 51 and 52 there. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. We find this time and time and time again. I I think the easiest uh, illustration of this is Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. Because it's so vivid in his portrayal as, as Nebuchadnezzar was walking around on his roof, just so proud of himself. Let's take a look at that, and then we'll go to Psalm 138. So join me in Daniel. And, um, you know, it's, it's so remarkable. Chapter 4. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar had previously been warned <coughs> concerning these things in chapter 2. And uh, another warning comes in chapter 3, but then in chapter 4, verse 4, Daniel 4, 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream and it made me fearful. And uh, this dream just kept him scared. And so he brings in the wise guys and says, explain this to me. And um, so Daniel's brought in to, uh, to describe it and to explain it. And scanning down through verse 22, Daniel says, It is you, O king, for you have become great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great and reached to the sky and your dominion to the ends of the earth. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar, you are a mighty king. There's nobody like you on this earth. In that the king saw a watcher, a holy one. This is an angelic being called the watcher coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it. Um, 
This is the interpretation, verse 24, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the King. And this is the decree of the Most High, El Elyon, as we were dealing with the Mighty One and the title for God here. Here's El Elyon, the Most High. Verse 27, Therefore, O king, see the warning, the warning is given, that if you get puffed up, if you get prideful, you're going to be driven away. Verse 25, You will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and you'll be drenched with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that El Elyon, the Most High, is ruler over the realm of mankind, and he bestows it on whomever he wishes. All right? You're not mighty king because you deserved it. You're mighty king because God put you there. And so, he's got some advice. In verse 27, Therefore, O king, my advice, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. In other words, repent, confess, get, get right with the Lord. So that's the warning. All this happened in Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. I keep saying, stay off the roof. I mean, that's where David was when he messed up. He looked down there and he saw Bathsheba. Here's Nebuchadnezzar. What is it with these kings walking around on the roof? I don't understand it. He's walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? <laughs> While the word was in the king's mouth. See, he couldn't even finish his sentence. And uh, God hands down judgment. And he's driven away. He becomes he's given the mind of a beast. And the judgment comes. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And it's not until the end of that time, in verse 34, that his reason returned to him. And he understood about humility versus arrogance. Alright, that's a side trip. I just like the passage. It's easy to find for me. Psalm 138. Psalm 138 and verse 6. Verse 4 says, All the kings of the earth will give thanks to you, O Lord, when they have heard the words of your mouth, and they will sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. It's interesting, looking ahead to the millennial reign, when all the kings will come at the Feast of Tabernacles and worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And they will sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord, for though the Lord is exalted, yet he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. The haughty he knows from afar. Though the Lord is exalted, yet he regards the lowly. That's what we were talking about at the beginning of this hour. He's exalted. He's got a plan that encompasses vast empires, vast passages of time. He's got the whole human race worked out, the whole angelic plan worked out, everything from Alpha to Omega. He's got the galaxies worked out. <laughs> and yet, he's focused on the individual person in an amazing way. Though he is exalted, yet he regards the lowly. Have you ever been around an important person? I'm talking about with earthly importance, a city council member or somebody in politics and government or state government, federal government, military. You know what I'm talking about? Someone that's very, very important that, that just walks right past you, doesn't even acknowledge your existence. <laughs> Because in reality, you're quite unworthy of their notice. Your existence is not worthy of their comment. Maybe I had too many years working for county government. Maybe I met too many attorneys. <laughs> all right. And my sister works for an attorney, and she's confirmed all of my, all of my suspicions with respect to a, a, a social class that, that just despises the social classes that they deem are beneath them. Alright? And that's just fallen human nature. See? And yet, here's God who regards the lowly. Here is God Himself in His awesome power and yet He regards the humble. 
And I just find that amazing. For though the Lord is exalted, yet he regards the lowly. And that's what Mary was singing about. That's what Mary was celebrating. Point H. God's victory in the angelic conflict. God's victory in the angelic conflict. That's supposed to be a dash. That little box up there. Luke 1, 51 through 53. Psalm 89, 10. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. If you examine this passage strictly from a human-only context, you're overlooking a great wealth of information that, that pertains to the angelic realm of existence. Bringing down rulers from their thrones... We understand that in the aftermath of the first Advent ministry of Jesus Christ, what earthly rulers were dethroned? What earthly human being political rulers lost their authority as a consequence of the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ? None. None. And yet, when he finished his work upon the cross, what did he do? He had disarmed the rulers and the authorities. The angelic application or the angelic impact of the ministry of Jesus Christ was extraordinary. It left the rulers of this age disarmed. It left them conquered. He could tell his disciples, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So if we look at verses 51 through 53, and all we're focused on is human beings, clearly you can see, okay, in times past, sure, there's human rulers he's brought down. Sure, there's human rulers he's set up. Certainly there, there is a human angle to this. But what about the angelic angel, or the angelic angle to this as well? How about Psalm 89? Psalm 89. A mass kill of Ethan the Ezraite. And one of the most powerful psalms in the book. The um, verses 1 through 4 with the human application... I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever. To all generations I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. For I have said loving kindness will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. This is why God cannot replace Israel with the church. This is why the promises to Israel must still yet be future and unfulfilled, yet promised. Because God will not lie to David, his servant, or especially to the son of David, his chosen one. Then verse 5, The heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord. Your faithfulness also in the assembly of the holy ones. Now we've gone from an earthly scene to a heavenly scene and we are viewing the, the eternal council, the divine council in the heavenly places which consists of God and the spiritual beings that he has populated the heavens with. Commonly called angels. All right. We gave you an introduction to angelology a few Sundays back pointing out that we tend to call every spiritual being an angel which is a bit of a misnomer because it is only the lowest level of those spiritual beings that are in fact Ungoloi messengers, that when you go up into the hierarchy of the principalities, the powers, the rulers, the authorities, the archangels, the seraphim, the cherubim, you go up into the ruling structure of the hierarchy and you understand that the, the messengers are simply the lowest level of the tier. And yet we, we call every spiritual being an angel and that's kind of vocabulary I imagine we're stuck with. I don't think one, you know... One uh, crazy pastor in Austin is going to change human vocabulary worldwide that's going to overthrow 2,000 years of common use. 
Remember, words are, are determined by their use more than anything else. But these are spiritual beings, angels if you want to use the term. The heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the holy ones. We are the exhibit to the angelic realm. For who in the skies is comparable to Jehovah? Who among the sons of the mighty, remember he is the mighty one, the angels are called sons of God or sons of might. Who among the sons of the mighty is like Jehovah? A God greatly feared in the council of the Kadeshim, the holy ones, and awesome above all those who are around him. O Lord, God of hosts, who is like you? O mighty Lord, your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Now, this is not talking about physical water. This isn't talking about two parts H, one part O. All right? That's water. We're not talking about that. We're talking about sea in its uh, uh, metaphoric use in the angelic realm. And uh, things that are coming up, maybe someday, if we live long enough to teach it, about how death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, the sea gave up the dead which were in them, death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire, the new heavens and new earth are created, and there's no more sea. Alright, we've got to do some work on the sea. Not only the literal sea, but the metaphoric sea as it applies in angelic passages. You rule the swelling of the sea when its waves rise, you still them. You yourself crushed Rahab. Now that's not the Jericho harlot. Alright? God didn't crush the Jericho harlot that spared the spies. Rahab, as we've done, is Satan. We've done studies on this when we studied Leviathan, when we studied the dragon. Rahab is the poetic name for Satan, the dragon. Leviathan, the, the fleeing serpent. You yourself crushed Rahab like one who was slain. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. Alright, so when Mary in her song is singing about the might of the Lord who has brought rulers off their thrones, who has exalted the lowly, we realize that God who is bringing about redemption is bringing about redemption for the human race, exalting the lowly and teaching the mighty the lessons of grace, the lessons of redemption, the, the nature of his essence. As we've seen in, in other studies in times past, the creation of man, the redemption of man, being instructive in the resolution of the angelic conflict. The heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world and all it contains. And it goes on. In any event, Psalm 89, maybe this class today will give you a new appreciation for Psalm 89 and, and maybe a new sense of how much more homework there is to do. <laughs> All right. There is a lot more to do in understanding the grace eternal plan in the ages for the maximum glory of Jesus Christ. God's servant Israel. Mary references it in Luke 1.54. It has a tremendous Old Testament application, primarily in the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 41, 8 and 9, Isaiah 44, 1 and 21, Isaiah 45, 4. God's servant Israel. Luke 1.54, Isaiah 41, verses 8 and 9. Isaiah 44.1 and also Isaiah 44.21. Isaiah 45.4. I'm running out of time. In fact, I'm out of time. Letter J, the Abrahamic Covenant. I'll at least give you the rest of the outline. You can jot the verses down and we'll come back Wednesday, Lord willing, and wrap the rest of this up. Don't know why I thought we could do A and B last week and then C D E F G H I J A this week, but came close. The Abrahamic Covenant, Luke one fifty five. Take it back to Genesis twelve, one through three, Genesis seventeen, one through twenty two. Understand the land, seed, and blessing promises that were given to Abraham. Mary had an understanding of it. And uh we'll tackle it as well ourselves next week. All right, these are the ten areas where Mary's song reflects an amazing Old Testament foundation. 
Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for this opportunity today. We rejoice because today is a double portion blessing. If you delay long enough, then we get to come back again this evening for another prayer meeting, for another Bible class. Again, that's if you delay long enough. We are waiting moment by moment to hear the trumpet. We are asking that today might even be the day. As our hearts desire, Father, as we can uh, join in the prayer request and say, Maranatha, um, come, Lord Jesus. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.